0: Hello, friends, and welcome to World Build With Us, the podcast where we create fantastical worlds with help from you, our listeners. My name is Rob Hilferty. I'm here with my co-host Daniel Quinn and Courtney Staples. On today's episode, we are joined by David Somerville and Justin Alexander to talk about their latest Kickstarter, Plane Gia. But before we get into today's episode, remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com and click a prompt where we will create your world. If you wanna follow us on social media, you can follow us on Twitter over at Let's World Build. You can join our community on Discord or if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money over on Patreon with a link for both of those in the description below. Now on to today's episode. Hello, and we are joined today with our special guest, Justin Alexander from The Alexandrian. Uh, Barely a guest at this point. He's been on once before. And we are also joined by the creator of Plain Gia, David Somerville. Uh, Gentlemen, glad to have you both on. Thanks
1: so much for having us. Thanks for having us.
0: So uh, for those of us who might not know you too well, David, why don't you tell us a little bit about why you're here and who you are? Yeah,
2: absolutely. So I am the creator of a new Stone Age 5th edition setting called Plangea. Um I've been around the game design space for a while. I've kickstarted some um, board games and uh, RPGs before, but this is my first real entry into a serious um, major 5th edition setting. Um, so I am here to talk about that and uh, have the extreme good fortune of getting to work with... Um, the legendary Justin Alexander on it, so I'm I'm just here to sort of like fanboy about that a little bit, and also I guess talk about Magic Dinosaurs.
0: <laughs> Fantastic, yeah, uh, I I know what you mean, uh, having had Justin on once before. Uh, Justin, what is why are you here? Like, I mean, on a spiritual level, on a more metaphysical level, but more specifically, why are you with us on the podcast today?
1: Well, apparently, it's to get my ego fluffed. (laughs) And I... (laughs) I am 100% here for it. I am here today. uh, I'm the RPG producer at Atlas Games. And uh, David had come to us. He'd been working on Plain Gia for a while. Uh, Atlas does a lot of fulfillment activities. And so David approached us originally saying, hey, I'm thinking about kickstarting this this fifth edition setting. Would you guys be interested in in kind of like helping me with the shipping and stuff? And we took a look at it and said, "Uh, we would like to to do more than that. We would like to throw all of our passion and resources at this amazing setting that you have created uh this primordial primal uh rich setting that has everything everything you love in fifth edition reimagined for mm. for this for this stone age setting this is one of the things that really that really appealed to me about the setting was that it wasn't just like you see you see other people attempt stone age D and it's often like well you've got to get rid of this and you've got to get rid of that and then the stuff mm. that's left over there's like people with clubs and <laughs> what david was really done he said it, it's much more interesting if everything you love in fifth Fifth edition is still in this setting in a primal form. We take nothing away. We just twist your expectations at every step along the way. And then we pour in all of this amazing creative energy, um, realizing this, this incredibly unique, dark, rich, uh, uh, raw setting. Uh, full of adventure, so we got super excited about. It and we said, David, we have to do more than this. We have to come in, and, and and we're gonna we're gonna work with you. We're gonna pour all of our resources into making this just the most amazing book and the most amazing setting possible. And and David seemed equally excited by that prospect as well. So on, on a spiritual level, I am here because <laughs> David created something awesome, and I am super excited to be part of his awesome.
0: That's fantastic. We're really excited to talk about it uh, now. Before we even really get into the meat, and I mean raw, uncooked meat <laughs> of this whole plane, Gia, uh, where can people find uh, Plane Gia as it stands now, and where it might be in Kickstarter?
1: Well, you're going to want uh, to. We want to is go to the Atlas Games website, which is at atlas-games.com, and then backslash Plane Gia. P L A N E G E A is uh, where you can find all the current websites with the links. There's some free PDFs that'll give you a sneak peek into the setting, and also links to the uh, to the Kickstarter right now.
0: Fantastic! Uh, and David, is there? A, 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 do you, I, I hear that you have a podcast of some kind? You <laughs> might want to plug that. Yeah,
2: sure. <laughs> it's called the Clan Fire. Um, it is the sort of core Plane GS story team. Just some. Awesome minds who really gathered around the idea very early and have been sort of the people who I'm um, super eager to kick around new material with. We all got together and hung out on Discord one time for, you know, an hour and a half. And we're like, well, this should be a podcast. So we are doing that. Um, It's called The Clanfire. It's every other week. uh, And um, it's a not... um, It's a pretty wholehearted ripoff of uh, earlier episodes of Keith Baker's The Manifest Zone. So if you like that, you'll like Mm -hmm. this.
0: I I just so happened to like binge through that as soon as I found out it was a thing. So yeah, (laughs) that is, and and having listened to a couple of the episodes, it is very reminiscent of The Manifest Zone, uh, just as interesting in certain cases. That's for sure.
3: Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. So in terms of diving into the setting, um, I think one of the, Great places we could start is what it means um, to, to be a character in Gia, And um, in your Clan Fire episodes, you talk about, um, well, there's one that's talked specifically about the three themes that govern the setting. Mm-hmm. And um, those are kinetic action, primordial horror, and mystic wonder. So I wonder if you could get us started there, because that would really get us a good understanding of what this is about.
2: Yeah, I'd love to. So... Um th- that's exactly right. Those three themes were really core to the designing of the setting. Um my earliest concept was it was sort of um Mad Max Fury Road with woolly mammoths. Uh how can we get that going? Um so the kinetic action is uh in pursuit of that, right? It shouldn't just be you're standing hitting a stegosaurus with a stick. It should be you're like Riding on a thundering herd of mammoths, leaping in the air, you know, ca- calling down lightning as you're slamming into the ground against a horde of undead Velociraptors. Like, um, have you guys watched *Primal* at all by Ginty Tart- Tartakovsky?
0: Hell yes, um, I have. That yeah, is yeah, it's that. <laughs> yeah,
2: <laughs> yeah, right. It's it's not just uh, you know, it's not just standing there and and hitting something. It is sort of everything is in motion. Every yeah. all action is cranked to eleven. Um, And we wanted to design a setting where it had sort of set pieces and um, monsters and weapons and sort of high enough stakes that you could really get there um, in your campaign. So that's that first pillar. And anytime we're looking at designing anything for the setting, we make sure that it's got that kinetic sort of in motion aspect um, and can just sort of at any moment feel like it just could just like fall off a cliff and become, you know, midair combat. Um,
0: Absolutely. I think that any setting where you can feel the impact of the club as it ripples up your arm or like really feel the tear of the teeth, like that's one of the best things about settings is that the what you're trying to evoke. And I think that kinetic action is such a such a great pillar to build a setting like this around. Like that's, yeah. that's really awesome to start with, yeah.
2: Totally, and yeah, and and then from there, I mean, um uh, I think that uh, having the raw materials is really part of that too. you know, it's very easy, something that's great about the setting is it's so easy to imagine, right? Because there's not like blacksmithing is something I know nothing about. So anytime I'm DMing you know a medieval fantasy campaign, I'm like, you go in the blacksmith and he's blacksmithing. <laughs> um, but in in this world, it's like, okay, you're wearing armor. It is like, you got a dinosaur skull on your left shoulder, a turtle shell on your right shoulder. You're wrapping a bear skin around all that. And you can like use all five senses in a way because everything is sort of stripped down to its raw elements, all of which mm-hmm. pushes for that really kinetic in-world feeling. The immersion is just can be really, really awesome in the setting. Mm-hmm.
4: Kind of speaking on the sort of vibe of the setting, I was really curious about the taboos that you established to really limit the advancement in the setting and keep it from kind of getting beyond this primordial stone age, uh, era.
2: Totally. Yeah. So an early challenge I had, I posted about the setting online a couple of times, like three or four times. I was like, wouldn't stone age D D be really cool. And (laughs) every single time I did, people were like, ha Yeah. Ooga booga me hit dragon with stick. And I was just like, that's not, that's not what I'm talking about. How do I, so I eventually, you know i deeply um, believe and i you know it, it is it seems very apparent that the earliest people were just as brilliant just as savvy just as canny as any of us are probably more so because they had to figure out everything from scratch and i wanted to make sure that you know you could play a character with a intelligence score of 16 18 20 in the game and not feel sort of out of place Um, So we created a DM and like story building tool called the Black Taboos, which uh, the idea is that there is this metaphysical force, which is canonically unexplained. It is nobody knows what it is or why, but there's something out there called the Hounds of the Blind Heaven. And anytime you break one of the four Black Taboos, the hounds just come after you and kill you. So the hounds enforce no writing no numbers higher than nine, no coins and no wheels, which are sort of four big, um, signs of moving past the stone age. There's also a setting villain who opposes agriculture, but technically it's a different thing than the hounds. Um, so all of these are there to help the DM have an in-world reason why brilliant wizards wouldn't have sort of moved everyone on to, into the next era. Um, and it's, I, it's the thing, anytime someone joins our discord server, which please everyone come on this discord server. It's a fun time. Um, anytime someone joins, they're like, but I have questions about the black taboos. <laughs> uh, and so what I always say is, you know, it's there to promote the fun. And if your cam, if your table lights up about it, it's like, that's awesome. Then, you know, lean into it. If your table is like, well, I don't need that. You know, to have fun, I c- we can all just like not invent the alphabet. Then that's cool too. And you can sort of dial it down. So throughout the setting, we really worked to make sure that there were these dials that you could adjust to find the right fun for your group.
0: Yeah. One of the things that I really love one is like a history nerd, and two is someone who loves exploring the implications of world building here are um, the, you know, you instead of gold or instead of like wealth in any way. That really kind of gets pared down in the setting. And on top of that, you use salt in weight as like kind of a pseudo currency, which yeah. again, as a history nerd, dear God, I loved that as soon as I heard it. <laughs> I was like, yeah, historically accurate, add it in there to absolutely. Why not? Agreed.
4: Love it.
2: Yeah. For sure. Salt's awesome. And it's like useful, but it's also what I love about it is, you know, if you're going to the seaside, like it drops in value to almost nothing. So it creates Mm -hmm. this whole uh, really playful way um, for DMs to be able to like, your money's no good here. What else are you going to do? And that playing Mm -hmm. with barter can be really, really fun.
3: What, What I think is interesting about the black taboos too, is that it underscores like your second pillar, which is that primordial, um, Primordial horror, which to me, when I was yeah. listening to you describe the theme, part of or a large part of that is the lack of knowledge about the world or its metaphysics, and, and I think that that's that. The, so the horror comes from not knowing. So the mm-hmm. not the, since since the black taboo is like fundamentally or unknowable. That's interesting because I think that that undergirds the whole concept. Yeah, I think that's you know I hadn't actually put my finger on this until that point
2: you just made. Um, so thank you, but I think that <laughs> uh, that. You're right. Having something that's fundamentally essential to survival in the universe and fundamentally unknowable uh, in the in the hounds and the black taboos does really evoke that, um, yeah, that Stone Age setting where you kind of looked up at the sky and it flashed with light, and rain yeah. came down and you didn't know why. Um, um, I ha- I never put those two things together until just now, but
3: I think you're exactly right. Because you, yeah, I remember you were referencing Fury Road to, and this is getting into the third pillar. But you were referencing Fury Road when I think it was you're talking about the women that were freed and they were yeah. looking at a piece of writing in the um in one of the trucks yeah. and that mm-hmm. that was like some it was almost wondrous to them so when you said yeah. like looking up at the sky and not knowing like it that connects like the horror and the wonder together which i think is really cool
0: mm.
2: they're really deeply connected and on either side it's this feeling of transcendence and something bigger mm. and beyond you yeah. and with horror that's something that's threatening and hostile and with wonder it's something that is going to surround you, even if you don't understand it and like lift you up. Um, and the world has a ton to do with um, proto-gods. There's this whole idea that mm-hmm. you don't have like the god of lightning or the god of, you know, magic. It's that lion on that hill has lived there for forever and has sort of made enough kills and survived long enough that people have started to worship them and they have accrued magic and now they're a god and now they're immortal and powerful. But they're then like, tied to that place for forever and they can't leave it so you get sort of these very like hyper local gods scattered around that can be anything Mm. and they're not they're not moral beings right they're just sort of like they are whatever that animal or place or um sort of like uh you know weather event or whatever that became a god that thing is just still following its instincts um whatever those might be and so that feeling of wonder um and just sort of encountering things around every corner that are kind of too big for you to deal with, but are still tangible and tactile. Um, that's what we're going for with, with mm-hmm. the wonder aspect.
1: Uh, I think this really it touches on something that I think is, is really essential to understanding why the setting can be so big is that, is that there is, that there's this primal quality, setting, this primordial quality. There's this idea that what you're seeing in Gia is, what came before the the sort of modern fantasy D fantasy that we know today mm. but what really makes it special is that rather than saying that it's that's like well this is all the stuff that was before all the cool stuff happened and so they said no back here everything was bigger and larger and trying to figure out what it was and so it's many yeah. different things and it's 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 large and expansive and exciting and it's almost token-esque like it almost says you know that mm. whole idea like in token about like like diminishing and going into the west like Plane Geo will make you look at D&D and say oh this is like what happens after the world has gotten smaller and more controlled and everyone got yeah. like actuarial jobs basically but before that <laughs> things were cool and like people rode mammoths and like T-Rexes and it was really awesome
3: prehistoric Silmarillion
1: <laughs> yeah,
2: yeah <exactly. laughs> yes. so every setting has like in the beginning when the gods and the giants raged against each other and it's like yeah let's just play them
0: right no no no, go back that sounded cool let's not get to that part yet yeah
1: (laughs) but let's go back to the place where god was just like in the next valley over and you have to go kill him because he's causing problems yeah
4: (laughs) yeah Yeah. the
2: first um the first Plane Geo one shot I ran for like our, our Patreon backers literally was, I think they were either first or third level and their job was, yep, go kill a God. And that's what you're doing at first or third level. Wow. Wow. Yeah.
0: That's amazing. (laughs) And really what it sounds to me, it's like, it's an evocation of like the, the classical sense of awe where it is like, yourself in the face of something, as you said, that is tangible, but is essentially unknowable as well. And it's that feeling that you send, that you get, especially in nature, I think. And I think that your setting does a really great job of evoking that sense as well.
2: Thank you. That's what we're going for. So that's awesome to hear.
0: Yeah. Uh, And actually, I've, I've had this question lined up since our last Justin Alexander interview because... I've been thinking about exploration in uh, RPGs in particular, uh, but it, it, for a while now, let's just put it that way. And one thing that I found that Gia does rather well is it gives exploration some kind of like it make there's a spice to your exploration within Gia that I really appreciate because I often find that exploration within tabletop role-playing is is often quite boring. And because in Gia there's no maps, there's nothing written down and everything is like you're discovering it for the first time. I think that that is one of the most interesting ways that I've seen someone approach exploration, especially on like a larger setting like this one. And uh, Justin, I know that you just did something for the Alexandrian that is basically a takedown of exploration. So I'd love to hear both your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, I mean, I th- I think you I think you've already nailed most of the major points here. That what makes exploration really cool in Plane Gia is a you I mean what makes exploration cool in any setting is you is you take an environment you have to have the myst- environment be mysterious and unknowable, which like the very nature of Plane Gia does that for you, and then you need to fill it with really awesome stuff for the players to be, you know, when they when they find it they have to go like wow, I am so glad that we found this. Like, this is an experience that I would not have had if I'd stayed home. And Plangea inherently does that as well by just allowing you to pack in, you know, awesome stuff around around every corner and a god in, in, in every valley, right? So all of that happens. I think the other thing too that really makes exploration uh, work at the at sort of the heart of Plangea is also the fact that so much about about life, living in the world of Plangea, comes back to... To your clan and your kin, and mm. these these uh, cultures and these people, who you are dependent upon in the face of of raw, uncaring primal nature, and also who, because your adventurers depend on you to see them over and through the darkness and the dangers and the horrible unknown of, of like David was saying, like the the lightning flashes in the sky and the strange magics in, in the next valley. So there's that mutual cycle of dependence, and that dependence is routed through the exploration and discovery of your environment. If you don't find the next safe place for your clan to stay, if you don't find the safe cave where... The the strange storm of purple rain won't wash away your soul, then then you are then you are in jeopardy. You are in trouble, and if you don't find if you can't find the next place for safe food or safe waters so or all of those things those primal those primal needs of survival and mutual dependence all also get driven through sort of the exploration of plain Gia.
2: Yeah, absolutely, and I think too. Um, you know, numbers are unknowable, right? So distance is unknowable. If someone says, you know, we want to, you know, find this landmark, they say, it's that way. And you say, how far? And you're like, I don't know. You keep walking. Uh, so I think that's something. And then the um, the world of Plangea is mobile. It is still shifting around. So literally, you know, a, a cliff that you know was in a certain place last season might not be there. Forests pick up and move all the time. Rivers wander. So your typical just like, oh, I can't get lost. I've been here before. Well, <laughs> here isn't the same. And uh, also, by the way, there's something in the bushes that's stalking you. So it, it raises the stakes and it makes all of the environment something that you're having to perpetually rediscover. Um, you know, there's no such thing as a simple journey along a road from point A to point B.
3: Um, so this is a little bit of a departure, but I think it's important because one of the things we try to talk about, um, on our podcast is a little bit about the creator and, um, you know where you're coming from as a creator so i wanted to know because you mentioned in the description of the game you know you were inspired by you know pulp sword and sorcery um you had mentioned a little bit about um Eberron and the challenge of creating that and how that inspired you so i want you to talk a little bit about like where do you come from from the position of like playing DD when you're a kid and like what are you like now as a creator and what are you influenced by
2: yeah okay well um uh, so I basically like, uh, failed my investigation check as a kid to find the secret door of D and D. Um, I, uh, I didn't know about it. I, you know, I was raised really conservative. And so I did all these things that looking back on, I'm like, that was me trying to play D and D. Like I have a notebook with like a world made with all these different factions that are fighting against each other that never turned into a book because I didn't, I didn't, Want a book I wanted a setting, uh, you know, we played a little like draw your own maze game and then like imagine walking down these doors and what what did you find? But it wasn't d because that didn't exist as far as I knew. It wasn't until I was like an adult, had a couple kids that um, I, you know, I had heard of d in the in the ether um, and it was late in 2014, um, just before fifth edition came out when I sort of was uh, working at a job with a bunch of cool nerdy folks and was like, hey, have, you ever, have any of you ever played D&D? And all of them were like, no. It's like, me neither. I feel like we're all super nerdy and we should do that. Um, so we did it. We, uh, my, my buddy Jeff Martin um, bravely took on the DM role for fourth edition and ran us through a game. And I came upstairs after playing it because we had it at my place. And my wife was like, so what is it? Like, what was it like? Because she didn't grow up with it either. And I was like, it's like a, a board game, but you can just literally do anything I think <laughs> exactly. Um, and it's so hard then to it was, describe, right, uh, right? Yeah, I've, I've told people describing a session of D anD D is exactly identical as describing a dream that you have. Yes, yes, mm.
4: yeah. Oh, Nobody um, wants to hear it because No, but, you know.
2: And then I was in this room, and there was a clown there. But then all of a sudden, we were falling, and yeah. <laughs> That's it's easy. it's very
0: and then everyone clapped vibes but yes. is, it really means a lot to you you know yeah. you're like, I, I i just ran a session uh fairly recently and i actually cried for the first time at the table mm-hmm. and i've never mm-hmm. been able to do that before and i'm like mm-hmm. wow this is such a cool hobby that i'm into right now where you can like really explore really just about everything that you can in yeah. experience. i love it there's there's I really so nothing agree. like it yeah
2: no, I completely agree. And wonder, you know, it's a pillar of the world, because it's important to me, too. And so that feeling of sort of like wonder and being transported beyond, you know, the assumptions that we make about our every day is I think the, the core of the thing that's amazing to me about D&D. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. I feel like it's it's a really, really special thing.
3: I'm so glad we got that last pillar in there. I was trying, but we got it. <laughs> <laughs> we did it. It only took did us it. 20 minutes. We got there. Uh,
2: um, so the settings origin then, because you were asking about that too, is... Yes. Um, yeah. I, so um, my wife and I lived in DC. Um, we decided to... Uh, not we decided we didn't want to raise our kids there because it's this really stressful area for us mm-hmm. and also our families had all kind of like moved away or, or like we in, in transition so i quit my job got a remote job uh we got an rv and we started um a year-long trip around the u.s to try and find a new hometown to raise our kids in
4: oh wow, oh,
0: wow.
2: Um, and as i was prepping the rv there's a ton of there's about a month's worth of work to get the the RV ready. And as I was prepping it, I was like, all right, I want a podcast. Cause I'm like doing all this labor. I'm going to listen to, I don't know. I like DD. How about this manifest zone podcast? Mm-hmm. Um, so I start listening to Keith Baker and co talk about the fantasy world search and the origins of Eberron. And it was just such a fascinating question to me, like this, this call to make something, and this was Keith's particular genius, I think was to not, not be restrictive about his setting, but have sort of all of the goodness of D&D in a setting that reinterpreted it. And I was mm-hmm. like, man, that's such a cool exercise. Like if I was back then, what would I do? And, um, you know, jotted down a couple of ideas and Stone Age D&D felt like the one that uh, was the one that stuck. Um, so it was, that's that's where it started. And, um, you know, I wrestled with various ideas. It didn't really come together very quickly until I was listening to... So many podcasts, by the way, have inspired the setting. I was listening to the Appendix and Book Club, um, which is totally brilliant. It's an examination of the literature that inspired the earliest versions of D&D, but it's done through a really critical, thoughtful lens, um, which is amazing because they're not critical, thoughtful books uh, as a rule. <laughs> and, um, uh, and But I never really invested myself in like that kind of sword and sorcery and didn't really have a category for what that was. And as they were... I was listening to like book after book about this and discussion of it, it sort of just unlocked this whole, a lot of what we've been talking about, like that primal feeling, that raw feeling, you know, like the danger, the darkness, the personal stakes, um, and all of that really, I think, was what launched, um, launched the setting forward and got us uh, most of the way to where we are now.
4: Well, I was curious, like, how did you decide on this primordial Stone Age era in particular? Like, was that something that interested you from the get go or?
2: Yeah, there's sort of an origin story to that. Hmm. I um, like the first year I was married to my wife. um, She arranged um, a surprise. I was just like there on a Saturday morning hanging out. And then my two older brothers show up and they're like, we're kidnapping you. Get in the van. Uh, I was like, where are we going? They're like, you don't know. Let's go. And um, that was when uh, Roland Emmerich's 10,000 BC uh, was in um, theaters,
4: yeah.
0: which
2: I had expressed interest in. And they were like, yep, we're doing this. And so we drove to Uptown Theater in, I think, Bethesda or Chevy Chase, Maryland, and which is just an enormous, enormous screen. It's huge. And so sort of without warning, I was thrown into this prehistoric fantasy. And I haven't watched the movie since because I'm worried that if I do, I'll like see all the holes mm-hmm. in it. In my mind it is a perfect film. <laughs> I know it's not, but in my, in my head, it's flawless. And I think the thing that really stuck with me is like, um, spoiler alert, but the, the movie starts from, you know, mammoth hunters and this nomadic tribe and then they encounter and more civilized society who is sort of like much bigger and scarier than, than them. And they have to deal with that. Um, and it has a lot to do about personal heroism and what does it mean to be a hero? And I think all of that got lodged in my brain and just like mm-hmm. dormant for a long, 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 long time. But, um, but then when, you know, I was listening to the manifest zone and thinking about it, I heard, I honestly have no idea what the other ideas I jotted down were because <laughs> when it came to like, Hey, that nobody's done that. Like, rewind the clock all the way back and unlock all of those feelings I felt while I was like suddenly in this dark theater watching this um, perfect, flawless masterpiece of a movie. <laughs> uh, mm. That's what I wanted to get at. Mm.
4: Yeah, that's that's awesome. Because I, I mean, I was so excited to learn about the setting because I love like ancient history, prehistory, primitive tech, everything along those lines, and like hadn't really seen that before in like an established RPG setting. So. That was, it's great to see.
2: Yeah. Well, and if it exists, I feel like it's always like that one weird continent over there, right? It's like (laughs) Chultz. It's like, go there, have like a weird, you know, Savage Lands kind of adventure and then come back and get to the real story. Mm -hmm. I was like, Mm -hmm. no, that stuff is so cool. Let's just stay there.
0: (laughs) Very. And one of the things that I think I really appreciate about Gia as well is this idea that like, and, and I hate to do this, except I don't really. But it's not like you try and reinvent the wheel, right? Like,
2: <laughs> you, basically,
0: you basically just try and reflavor the wheel in a lot of places. Because a lot of the things that people love about D&D, in fact, I'd say most of, if not all of them, are still here. And that's what's yeah. really good about it. Is that it's like D&D works for a reason. And to like, I think what you're getting at, especially when it comes to the, uh, the contest, is that so many people were like, Well, let's chuck out this half of d and right. jigger it so it makes sense to in my setting. Whereas here, you're like, Nah, D&D is fucking dope. Like, let's <laughs> do it see it in this different light. And we're going to do it through this lens. This is the lens that we're going to see it. And then you really dig down and drill into the, the, uh, the, uh, what's the word w- that we always use, Daniel? What is it?
3: Um, it's the
0: implication is what I'm oh. getting at. It's, mm-hmm. it's all about the implication about your world. So when you talk about, you know, you, you have numbers that are one through 10 and then many, like there's implications to that, that you get to explore within the setting, just like there's yeah. stuff about metal and, uh, and, and, agriculture. And it's like, all of that's there. You can still have really interesting stories. It just causes you to think in such a different way. That, and and again, I think that what's really important to the setting as well are those three pillars. So it's like, hey, these are the stories that we really, really want to tell and what that we really want to focus on. And that's what I think uh Plain G does so well.
2: Yeah, I think that's right. And I th- I appreciate that. The um, You know, I've seen settings which I admire the creativity of um, where they say like, you know, the big thing in our world is elves are savage brutes and orcs are sort of like elegant leaders. Mm-hmm. And, um, and I'm mean, sort of questions of, you know, how races are presented in D&D aside, mm-hmm. um, you know, that sort of, let's take what it is and just flip it um, was not what I wanted to do here. I, I really wanted to do what you're talking about, which is let's take everything that is and like an elf, as we understand them from tropes are inherently dope. <laughs> like, they're so cool. Mm-hmm. And how do you take that and keep everything that's awesome about them and just like rewind the clock to um, a more raw sort of primitive form or primal form, um, but still retain, like it's got to feel like an elf. And that that was the goal for Absolutely every monster, class, um, everything that we sort of reinterpreted, it had to retain its inherent identity while perhaps having a very different role in a world where the rules are
3: all different. So that's another question, as you mentioned, um, you know, elves and how we reinterpret them, um, especially with Pelangia being like a primordial setting and this question, I'm sure, is going to come up elsewhere, and you've addressed it before, is, Suzy so and d you know, has faced criticism recently for, like, having an essentialist view of the fantasy races and then the, the issues with the Vistani. With Plangea, um, how do you avoid, what does the setting do to avoid, like, the savage, you know, trope, basically? And how would you steer players away from thinking that way?
2: Yeah, I think that's a lot of what the Black Hound, or sorry, the hound, the Hounds of the Blind Heaven are there for and the Black Taboos. Mm-hmm. I think that the underlying assumption that the setting didn't really work until I was able to come up with the Black Taboos to say, these people are smart. These are smart, brilliant, cunning, clever, charming survivors, inventors, thinkers, poets, warriors. It's nothing, it has nothing to do... It's sort of like your, your level of technology has nothing to do with how um, brilliant or um, mm. powerful or human you are. It's all to do with sort of the limitations that are placed upon you and the opportunities that present themselves to you. And so in a world that's bent around survival and has strong limitations from sort of this um, very low ceiling of technology, you um, uh, Kins, which is our, our word for what mechanically are represented by races in 5E, um, band together or break apart strictly on can we survive together? So you don't have sort of large um, kinship enclaves as, as the default. The default is people are ming- mingled together because they're stronger when they're um, surviving in mixed groups. Um, and, uh, you know, kinship is a part of your identity, but it doesn't define you in any way. And I think that's, um, that's one key way, I think. And also just making it, making the stakes higher than, Mm -hmm. you know, are you smart enough to survive a bear? Like the basic assumption in the setting is pretty much everyone can survive a bear. They're all alive now. The problem is there's (laughs) liches and dragons and, you know, (laughs) unspeakable horrors in the night. And, um, so that I think helps get past the sort of savagery, um, Mm -hmm the wrong path there.
3: I mean, I I like the concept of there's an equalizer and the fact that all of these groups have to figure out how to survive together. And so, you know, their differences in other ways might be uh, irrelevant given that they have to survive in this crazy, you know, landscape.
2: Yeah. And, you know, another kinship group has a survival strategy that is of great value to you, right? Mm -hmm. If you've got um, elves who are sort of um, half dream and can move between the... The, the world of dreams and the world of waking, which they can, uh, in Plain Gia, then like they have access to magic or secret ways through the world that you need to survive the brutal winter that's coming on.
4: So right. there's
2: much yeah. more, you know, orcs are like, you are big and strong and I want you on my side. Right. Yeah. So it's, uh, it's much more about sort of admiring and, um, desiring the strengths of other kins rather than, sort of xenophobia and pushing and and othering cuz in a world where everything is trying to kill you there's less time yeah. for othering.
4: Mm-hmm. Exactly. I think
1: yeah. yeah, I think putting the clans at the center of of life in the setting, having those clans within of life in the setting, is is really is really key because it gives you the mechanism by which you are defining who you are and what your culture is and and who you are associating with not by not by your kin but by the the choice of clan and who and who you are going to survive with. I think that's really essential. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing too that I think David kind of undersells because I think he just does it instinctively, <laughs> is that the the kins uh the different groups the elves and the dwarves and and the orcs and everything else they are not defined by their personality you don't you don't have the aloof elves or the taciturn scottish dwarves or the you know the angry the angry orcs what you what you have uh instead is uh is much more about the fantastical abilities of these different kins and and because the focus is on that, it allows it to be much more about what what do we do together uh, mm-hmm. rather than like, oh, well, you know, the orcs are all some sort of uniculture over there. Um, that makes sense.
0: Oh, yeah. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's avoiding the monoculture is always important with like rich world building, I think. And one of the things that I do find really interesting about the Kins is like how... You know, it's it's kind of like, hey, everyone's a friend when there's teeth in the dark, you know, like you right. really want to <laughs> avoid something that's going to fucking murder you without any remorse. And actually, Justin, you give me a, a pretty interesting segue here is that so obviously we've just spent about the better part of a half an hour talking about how amazing and how interesting Plangia is. And what I was really curious about as uh, as a developer, right, like what did David do to sell you the best that he could on plane Gia, besides everything that we know about it, what what really comes across to you as a developer on, on like the business side of things?
1: Mm, on on the business side of things, well, let me start with the creative side of things, and then I, and then I will segue back. To the, yeah. to the business side of things specifically. I mean, the the biggest thing David did in terms, I guess there's, there's a mixture here. I guess we'll say this. The biggest thing David did when he, when he came to us was that what he was presenting was not just like an idea. He had a complete package of setting that he was able to show to us. and And the biggest sales point for playing Gia for me was already sitting down with, with the rough draft of the book that David handed and reading through it and on every single page I was like I, I want to be there I want to do that I want to run an adventure there I have three new ideas for adventures and then turning the page and having it happen again uh and that to me is is just kind of whether whether as a fan or a publisher that's the biggest sales point of an rpg book is if is is how many ideas is it giving me for cool things to do in a session whether that's full adventures or like cool moments or just things i want to share with with my friends and my players i'm playing g just had that in spades so that that's the Mm -hmm. in, in terms of like what do you need for your calling card the first thing is you know be awesome um (laughs) <laughs> but the the other thing the other thing david had done e- even before before he came to atlas was that david had done a, a ton of work in building in building an existing community of fans there was a um there was a plane g uh uh subreddit uh that was that was active with people sharing their ideas and and david was active and participating in that and 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 the, the, the shared excitement of that environment and, and now there's a now there's a Discord and he's also sort of the podcast he was talking about. So from a from a purely business standpoint, when somebody comes to you and says, I have an awesome idea. That's great. And they say, by the way, I also have several hundred people who are already excited about it. Like, it, you don't have to do, like, like who's going to buy this? You're like, well, I know who's going to buy mm. it. The, the trick is just how many more people can we make aware of what these people already know and, and what I know now, that that this is something special and this is something awesome. And that was kind of a similar experience to what I had with Magical Kitties Save the Day, which is the role-playing game game we did last year, uh, the all ages role playing game. And, and that was kind of a similar experience where again, there was, there was uh, the creator, Matthew Hansen came and he had an amazing package. We, we actually, as a company found that game by playing in a game he had run at a local convention. And, uh, so we were, uh, that's the beginning. We, we get excited about it, and then we look around and we say, well, okay, well, we, there's this existing community, whether small or medium or large, that is already excited about this thing. How can we share this excitement? And I've recently been I've been doing I've been doing some stuff for my Twitch stream, looking back at the earliest days of D and D, and that's really what Dave Arneson with his original Blackmore campaign, was experiencing as well. He was he had he had created this thing with his fellow players in St. Paul, Minnesota, in his basement. They were they had shown up one day and said, "Let's go into the dungeons beneath Castle Blackmore, you know, you know, invent the modern role playing game." Mm-hmm. Uh, but his players were super excited about it, and and they were telling other people about it, and the community of people who were excited about this new idea grew until gary gygax in lake geneva said dave you should bring that game over here and run it for me so i see what all the excitement's about and that's what dave did um and so i mean you look at that again again it's it's all about having something that that you're excited about that then gets other people excited about it and and then i if from a, from a business standpoint from an rpg developer standpoint from a publisher standpoint that is what my mission is is to find these exciting things and and use use my resources that I have available that Atlas has available to to let other people know, hey, you should be excited about this, too.
0: That is a a perfect summation of how to get published in the industry. If you ask me, you know, start with awesome, build your brand. And then once that's done, once the hard work's done, then you just got to advertise it. Right. (laughs) Yep. Uh, All right. So, (laughs) gentlemen. We are at the point where we are ready to roll into a world-building jam. Now, Justin, you've done this part with us, but David, you haven't. What we do here is we're going to roll some dice on a random table that have genres, themes, what we're focusing on, and then we build a setting scenario based on what we're you know, talking about within that setting. Uh, halfway through, we fuck everything up by throwing in a twist, and <laughs> we kind of just all roll with it together. Uh, so I'm going to roll some dice and then we're going to figure out what our genre is first. And That's that so is going to be, so we've got body horror as our mm. uh, as our genre. Nice. All right. Uh, Justin, since you've been on, we've reworked the overall table. So they're less generic and way more specific. Like I said, body horror. Uh, and the theme that we're going to be focusing on is, treachery. So we've got body horror with the theme of treachery. And the first thing that we're going to be focusing on within this setting is a hero. So uh, as our guests, David and Justin, you're more than welcome to start us off with any ideas that you have surrounding a body horror story centered around treachery, focusing on a hero. So please take it away.
2: I mean, I think that these are, uh, this is a match made in heaven, right? Because I think core to body horror is being betrayed by your body.
4: Absolutely. And I feel Mm -hmm.
2: like you're dealing with a hero whose body is betraying them, who is heroic because they are fighting the transformation um, uh, in order to to do what is heroic.
4: Mm Mm-hmm.
0: He is heroic in spite of himself in a lot of ways is what I'm kind of getting.
2: Yeah, Justin, improve yeah. that idea. <laughs> no,
1: yeah, so, uh, let me, let me, let me, let's see if we can, like, if we take the theme of treachery and and we, uh, we make it exponential, so you have treachery built on treachery, what if, like, what if we have, Something like John Carpenter's the thing where there's this alien parasite that creates a treachery of the body, mm-hmm. but then then the hero that we're dealing with is someone who had who is who is, who's been afflicted by this who is who is part of this culture but is actually betraying whatever that whatever that culture is as well. And what Mm. I'm wondering is if there's a way to make it so it's not just John Carpenter's The Thing. Is there a way to have a similar vibe that isn't alien from outer space, that isn't body snatcher?
0: Well, we could add a religious aspect to it and make it heretical in some way. So there is some kind of like, you could make it, I mean, if you want to make it physical and literal, there could be a corruption of like in a demonic or a celestial sense uh, if we wanted to run in that direction with it.
1: Yeah, there's something interesting about the idea that, you know, if if we, if we could move towards the idea of of having lots of gods and, and that almost, almost gods as parasites, where Mm -hmm. like, the, the more, the more that, that a god, that a god gets you to open your your soul to them or, uh, or rips your soul open, if they're more of a demonic entity, uh, the more they actually start transforming your physical form. Yeah, kind
0: of I mean, a,
3: a a stigmata kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Oh, so mm-hmm. faith is direct transformation. The more faith you have, the more you're transformed. That's cool.
0: Or, or, or it could be even like a a force. Like, for some reason, I'm thinking of like this hero of ours is essentially forced to be the avatar for some god that he really doesn't believe in. But for some reason, his faith is essentially being overridden. And it's really a, a conflict between the two faiths and the two kind of ideals that he has within himself. Alternatively, if you wanted to go a different route, you could also make him be a faithless person who has been inflicted, as he would see it, with some kind of a divine presence as well. But I'm just tossing out ideas. Courtney and Daniel, yeah, yeah. you've all been very quiet. I want to hear from you guys.
4: Kind of like the idea of like an an angel coming down from heaven and giving you some sort of task or power and you being like, wait, no, 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 I I didn't ask for any of this. Like, Mm. I didn't want this at all, (laughs) but you're stuck with it. Yeah,
1: yeah, there is a body horror element even in like an an, an ineffable angel that is beyond the description of physical Mm. words comes down to you and says, oh, by the way, my boss made you pregnant
4: oh my god
3: <laughs> right. yeah it's pretty cl- that's pretty close to the uh, standard uh mythology there right.
1: i like i mean it doesn't have to be you know obviously pregnancy has to be the thing but like mm-hmm. but that 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 central element of like ineffable beings coming down and saying by the way we're changing your body for you um, yeah, yeah it's kind of like warlock joan of arc right it's like they're speaking <laughs> to you and you have a mission
2: whether or not you want it but also they're changing you physically at the same time
1: Oh, yeah, like the there's an idea of like the like if we, let's call them stigmatics, right? and mm-hmm. and they're kind of like the like the the chosen, the chosen of the gods, but they don't actually they're chosen by the gods. they don't choose. So it's not a manifestation of your faith because that wouldn't really be necessarily mm-hmm. horrific. But mm-hmm. like these chosen have voices, and part of the physical transformation is also that you begin speaking in tongues, in voices, but it's not your voice. So it's really the chosen is basically, gods or whatever are choosing to call themselves gods are basically literally taking over your existence
3: i was about to get to that because i feel like i wanted to borrow something from Plangia of like the gods these are the new gods so they don't really they're not really metaphysical beings they're actually visceral but they're interpreted that way so maybe these things that they're approaching like they have some physicality to them that bring about this Mm. transformation
0: they're gods that you can... T- oh, well, actually, if we take it that way, if we want to approach gods as, like, a physical thing, mm-hmm. maybe gods need people to grow. And I yeah. mean that in, like, in a physical sense. So, like, you're, you're forced to, like, withstand the physicality of this god in some way as it grafts onto your body or something like that.
3: Or the I'm speaking just- transmits that somehow, like Justin was saying.
0: Yeah, yeah, there's something to it. There's... Oh, man, there... See, this is what I love: is that a couple of dice rolls and some really creative people, and we're just off to the races with all sorts of horrifying ideas, which I love.
1: <laughs> well, there's potentially some of the idea that, like, like the, the old the old image of the god in the hollow, right? That like that the the gods were intensely local before they before they grew larger than that, and that the that that, that these that these new stigmatic gods have figured out that the that the way to spread yourself from from the hollow. Like rather than mass communication, which is what did it in the real world, the way to spread yourself from the hollow is to like make make these stigmatic duplicates of yourself and then these duplicates can go forth and and found their own hollows. And so mm-hmm. like these these sort of primal divine wars are just literally squabbling oh, wow. territories of um of of these of these physically altered stigmatics. This is almost gods as a disease. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah infect
2: yeah. you when it spreads.
0: I, I like actually that. had the uh, there are those ants that in- get infected with the fungus. Yes, and that's how they spread their spores. Mm-hmm. That's exactly the type
3: of thing that I have in mind here. And it's almost more powerful than your average faith because I and this is my cynical point of view. The regular <laughs> uh, transmission of a faith requires um, accepting it, right, and believing it. Whereas this one, it's specifically targeting those that don't believe to transmit yeah. itself.
2: Yeah. There's also, well, and this might just be because Dune is coming out, but like the idea mm-hmm. of um, sort of being unwillingly transformed into a god, yeah, is kind of interesting. Oh yeah, yeah, with like
3: Paul essentially, yeah, I mm-hmm. yeah. And like,
4: how would you even stop that? Like, once that process is started, how I do can't. you? How do you fight against a god that's trying to inhabit your body?
1: Well I mean the interesting story there too is like it's it's obviously horrific if if you're not of the faith but it's it's almost worse if you actually like believe believe in whatever doctrines these 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 gods are, are teaching, but then that you begin getting transformed and realizing this isn't some sort of like ascension, it is actually just a mm. destruction of yourself. Mm. I mean, that's the mm. that's the ultimate treachery, right? Oh, it's Indeed. a total
0: and complete shattering of one's faith in what they previously believed in. Mm. Yeah. And maybe Absolutely. the way
3: you answer that question, how do you resist it, is you accept the tra- that you're being transformed, but you pervert the purpose. So whatever the faith actually preaches, you choose your own path, which is kind of what Paul does in the future. So you do uh, something opposite or adjacent to whatever they want you to do with that newfound power
0: choose heresy yeah (laughs) yes (laughs)
1: well and then then, yeah then there there comes there comes your hero role in almost like a Mm -hmm. like a a blade kind of way where like you you have you have the powers but you choose to use them to fight the thing that that you were created Mm -hmm. by that the, the treachery which born you is now the treachery of you turning on the thing which created you Absolutely.
0: Mm-hmm. So I think we've approached the point where now we get to take a really interesting, cool idea and fuck it, potentially fuck everything up with a dice roll. So we're going to throw <laughs> in the twist and we're going to really hope that we don't get something like turn everything anime. <laughs> <laughs>
3: please, please no. Please.
0: <laughs> so it says here that family gets involved. So what is our mm-hmm. interpretation of family getting involved with this whole situation?
1: Well, there could be a genetic component to there could be a genetic component to the stigmatics, or mm. it could also be like a seventh son of a seventh son thing. where well, it's not so much mm. about um, well, it's not so much about the uh, like genetics per se as it is about some sort of dynamic of the family relationship that creates the opportunity.
4: Maybe maybe the family had yeah sort of done something to their child to prepare it for. this to be a vessel for the god and once the child learns that um i imagine shit would go down
0: (laughs) yeah um i i uh, uh, oh man i'm i'm thinking of i'm blanking on the name in in the bible who's the one who tries to sacrifice his child in the name of god abraham thank you yes okay it, in a sense, it almost makes me feel like there's an Abraham situation happening here where it's like the 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 child isn't the one who chooses, but it's the parent. The parent is the one who says you're ordained by the God I believe in to become a stigmatic. Right. Like mm-hmm. it's it, it maybe there is a seed of pure faith that has to be born in the next generation. And that's how we can involve the family.
3: Yeah, standard uh, religious eugenics. Makes sense.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is maybe
2: me trying to force wonder into what should just be horror, but I feel like, you know, it could also be, um, I don't know, I, I, I respond to horror where it's not just all totally bleak, but there's also like points of light. And so yeah. I wonder if perhaps like, you know, you've got this question of hero and betrayal and family, you know, maybe there's a sense of a possibility of rescue, or of truth breaking through, or of hope mm-hmm. that's coming through family somehow. Absolutely. Maybe
3: all of the uh, these alien god-infected thingies aren't necessarily all bad. You know, maybe there's mm-hmm. ones to be found that can be allied with in this this treachery treachery hero's uh, reversal of the situation.
0: Mm-hmm. And not only that, but we can also approach the story as one of the faithful watching a stigmatic go through the process. So. To them, it might be something that's genuinely awe-inspiring, like something that is affirming their faith, watching yeah. the stigmatic go through what they're going through. Like, it's its all a matter of a perspective change, really. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I don't know about you. I think that that's where we should probably stop with all that, because I think that that's, that's the best we're going to do for the time being without you know, uh, creating a discord and eventually pitching our game. Down. Uh, so that leads us into the rapid fire question round. No one's ever ready for this. So I'm going to go ahead and ask you, David. Uh, my wife wants to know, is cereal a soup?
2: Oh, I have a whole thing about this. There, All food can be broken into four categories. Soup, uh, <laughs> salad, uh, steak, and uh, wait, soup, salad, steak, and sandwich. And so absolutely, <laughs> cereal is definitely a soup.
0: All right, thank you so much. Uh that's that's another point for the soup side. Now, um uh, I also want to know what are you playing and what have you been playing recently?
2: Uh I I only ever play D&D. <laughs> well, no, that's well, yeah, Baldur's Gate 3 is also D&D and then yeah. I guess just mindless phone games. Um really enjoying um Balls with a Z, which is like a block breaker. Uh that's a, that's a really good time waster.
0: I I agree with you there. Justin, same question. What are you playing now and what have you been playing recently?
1: Uh, I have been playing, I've been actually been playing Feng Shui, uh, one of Atlas's other RPGs. Uh, we have a bunch of adventures coming out for it, so I've been I've been playtesting those uh, with my local group. Uh, I am about to launch a new D&D 5th edition campaign, uh, and I am currently experimenting with an open table for Magical Kitties Save the Day. Oh, and I'm Ooh. also really excited to be getting back into... Um, uh, Gloomhaven. My Gloomhaven oh. game had been put on hold for the entire pandemic, uh, but we have all gotten vaccinated now, of course, um, and are able to get back together and, and rediscover that mammoth box.
4: Oh! I, I just started to get back into that over the weekend, actually, with my boyfriend, and like just immediately died, like right away scenario, <laughs> just, like That's maybe Gloomhaven. halfway through, and yeah. yeah, and it was it was good. <laughs> <laughs> Love it.
2: All oh, right. also shout out to Sushi Go with my kids and wife. That mm-hmm. is a good time. Oh, that's a good game.
0: Yeah. Uh, all right, uh, Daniel or Courtney, rapid fire questions for David and Justin.
3: Um, well, obviously, what's your favorite dinosaur?
0: Oh yeah, how how did we miss that?
1: You're right. <laughs> Justin, <laughs> go. <laughs> Brontosaurus from, from the time I was very young I had an amazing plastic Brontosaurus toy and it's been my favorite ever since yeah. and I'm very excited that I can call them Brontosauruses again Yes, pedantically correcting me I yeah. was heartbroken when the Brontosaurus was made non-canon <laughs> and I'm delighted
2: once again
3: Hey, I stopped paying attention to dinosaurs once they decided they had feathers I'm like, well, that's not going to happen <laughs> <laughs> <not cool> anymore. <laughs> uh, David, what uh, David. was yours?
2: I've had too many favorites over the years. I was really partial for a long time to the Parasaurolipus, because that crest was really cool. And my cousin had this theory that they could breathe fire and that the crest let them breathe fire. And I was like, yes, that is cool. I agree.
3: Yeah. (laughs) And my second question is, Conan the Barbarian or He-Man?
2: For me, it's Conan all the way. Yeah. Conan
0: all the way. Yeah. Cool.
3: That's the correct answer. That's the correct answer.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Courtney, any questions?
4: Um, what TV shows have you been into lately, if any?
2: Ted Lasso.
4: Yes! Oh, so yeah. Yeah.
2: wonderful. Oh, I am like, all about... Heart. Have you guys heard of um, New Sincerity, like the David Foster Wallace joint? No.
4: no. Mm-hmm. So uh,
2: there's like a art, an art movement called the New Sincerity, which I officially count blamed you as part of. <laughs> and Ted Lasso is that it is just like genuinely good-hearted, genuinely hopeful. I know, got horror in my in my uh, setting, but um, it's like meant to be deeply optimistic.
0: It's I, I can second that. I can second that as well. Ted Lasso is like pure joy in the form of a TV show. It is so kind-hearted. <laughs>
1: I, I suspect that my, my wife will actually kill me if I don't
3: watch Ted Lasso soon. So I'll be joining, I'll be <laughs> joining the cult in the right there with <laughs> you, Justin. I just, so, I'm so hesitant because everybody's preaching it. I'm like, I guess I got to join the cult. Yes. So there we go. Just
2: <laughs> do the first five minutes. This is always my rule. No. Anytime yeah. people won't shut up out about
1: a TV show, do the, all, you're, all you have to commit
2: to is the first five minutes.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No. Fair. No, I'm actually looking forward to it. I just haven't had time uh, to to get into it the past month, but soon. Mm-hmm. Um but uh, what I've been watching is uh, actually I actually watched a sadly canceled TV series called Debris, which was from one of the creators of Fringe. And the concept oh. was that there was an uh, alien spaceship that entered the solar system. But our telescopes are like, OK, well, that's an alien spaceship, but it appears to be in pieces. Uh, and then the pieces begin falling, falling to Earth. And so there's a task mm. force that goes out and tries to track down the debris uh, that's having strange effects. Um yeah, it it gets off to a little bit of a slow start. The first couple of episodes, uh, the show is far more interested in uh, soap opera than it is in the alien artifacts. But mm. three or four episodes in, it gets over itself and is like, "Oh, we're all here for the alien artifacts, right?" I'm like, "Yes, that is why we are here. Do more with those." um I actually just watched. Um, I actually just watched Ten Thousand BC for the first time, David. David, how do- how is it? I liked it. I mean, I'm okay. not going to go as far as you say it's flawless, but it is a <laughs> it is a it is a solid pulp fantasy uh cult movie. Like I think back to all the movies of of my youth, things like Beastmaster and mm-hmm. and like the original Conan the Barbarian movie mm-hmm. and like it is it is 100% in that vein and totally enjoyable. If I I mean like so many people critique is like, well, it's not historically accurate. I'm like, I, I yeah, it's not. It's not, really not supposed to be. And <laughs> it is 100% true. Uh, but yep. it does have mammoths on a pyramid with a divine God, so I'm going to uh, I'm gonna just lean back and accept it. It's you might so have just good. convinced me
4: to check it out yeah. It's, it, yeah. It,
1: it, 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 yeah it's 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 not the greatest film of all time uh but it, it it's a lot of fun uh, it certainly got yep. me in the mood to do some plain Gia,
4: mm-hmm. and
1: then Loki <laughs> is the other thing I watched in the past couple of weeks.
0: I've been putting that off and I'm really excited to just like binge all of it at once. I'm right there with you. <laughs>
1: It, uh, it is 100% percent uh, worth it. Uh,
2: mm-hmm. All right. Oh, Mythic Quest. Also, my wife does not care about video games at all. And she's like, we watch Mythic Quest and she's like, we're starting this over and watching it again. Wow. Uh, it's <laughs> wonderful. Mythic Quest is great.
4: I keep hearing good things about that one. Yeah. Well, I, I think we're at
0: the point where uh, I have one more question for you. And that is, I would love for you to tell me about someone who, uh is not yourself who you'd like to plug and give a shout out to and obviously you have you can't do each other that's not how this dang happens. it I, was, I, I, I found the loophole i <laughs> have found the loophole <laughs> let me let me sew that before i see what happened <laughs> yeah
2: amazing um I mean, I'll plug the podcast that inspired DD. Uh, not D that inspired Plain G. It's the Manifest Zone with Keith Baker, um, Appendix and Book Club. And um also Mastering Dungeons with Sean Merwin and teo Abadia is a masterclass. It is phenomenal, and they do such a good coverage of 5e news. I love, love, love it. I can't wait for Thursdays every time a new episode drops.
0: Ah, very exciting. And Justin.
1: Uh, I think I'm going to go ahead. This this arrived in my mailbox last night, so it's fresh in my mind. Uh, the Lost Dungeons of Tonnesborg by Greg Svensson. Greg Svensson was a member of Dave Arneson's original Blackmoor group, and actually became a not exactly a co-GM with Dave, but his Tonnesborg setting, which was another dungeon under a castle, which was a lot. Well, basically, what all dungeon masters did for the first two or three years of the game was was just <laughs> dungeons under castles, because like. It, a bit of a tangent but like so like so dave arneson creates uh blackmore which is a castle with a big dungeon under it and people don't really know what this new game is but they know it's fun so when they're trying to like capture what's fun about it, they're like well it's the castle with the dungeon under it so we're just going to keep making castles with dungeons under it so <laughs> so gary gygax makes greyhawk a castle with a dungeon under it uh, and then greg svenson made tannis which was a castle with a dungeon under it and the players in dave arneson's campaign could actually just go down the road to tannisborg and go into greg svensson's dungeon well a, a group was making a documentary called secrets of blackmoor a couple of years ago discovered that greg svensson still had all of his original notes from that wow. dungeon and so they have actually published this dungeon this 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 D dungeon from before D was published wow. uh can now be can now be purchased with the with with uh replications of the original maps and original key and also uh expanded keys and descriptions from from great expense and so i haven't had a chance to actually dive in and begin reading the thing yet because like i said just showed up last night but this is the thing i'm currently hyped up about so as soon as i find five minutes i'm going to be diving into that
0: that is wild awesome. and really exciting yeah Who knew that going into a forest would be so innovative? Right (laughs) at (laughs) one point. All right, Uh, gentlemen, that is going to do it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. As usual, it's been a blast. Uh, I cannot thank you enough.
1: Thank you for having us. We love this. Absolutely, Absolutely. it's really great. Again,
0: yeah, and and uh, tell people where we can find you and all of your things online.
2: Uh, I'm easiest to just find at Plangea on Twitter, um, Plangea on Reddit. Uh, I don't tweet personally, but I'm uh, SMRVL, which is my last name with all the letter, extra letters taken out on Reddit and spend way too much time there.
1: Uh, you can find out a lot of the stuff I'm doing at atlasgames.com. That's atlas-games.com. You can find my personal role-playing game site and new site at the Alexandrian um, at, at thealexandrian.net, and you'll find all kinds of game mastering advice and remixes of adventures and all kinds of cool stuff there. I also stream on Twitch, and I also have a Discord, and I also have a YouTube channel uh, with new videos coming out on, on the regular. So, But if you go to net, you'll find sort of the central hub with links to everything else.
0: Fantastic. Uh, and as I understand it, you also have a Kickstarter going on right now. Is that right?
1: Yes, we have a Kickstarter running right now for Plane to G bring, to bring this whole world uh, right into your laps, more or less. Uh, we have the, the book itself. We have an awesome adventure. Uh, we have a soundtrack. That's going to be part of that package as well. Um, there's a deluxe edition, uh, which is just going to be uh, svelte, I believe, is the keyword we've been talking about uh, for that. Uh, so just just a ton of amazing stuff. And our stretch goals involve unlocking a whole bunch more uh, really cool adventures from, from David and his brain trust uh, set in Plain Geo. So we're excited about that, too.
0: Uh, you can definitely sign me up for that as well. That sounds really exciting. Uh, gentlemen, again, so glad to have you on and uh, hopefully that Kickstarter goes really well. I'm sure that by the time this goes up, you'll have already smashed every goal, I'm sure.
1: <laughs> Fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Yeah, it's open.
0: And we're back. Uh, I just wanted to thank uh, David and Justin so much for being with us again. Uh, I know that by the time that this episode comes out, they would have probably already smashed their Kickstarter goals. Uh, big thanks again for having them on. Uh, That'll do it for this episode of World Build With Us. Remember that if you want us to build your world, you can always go to our website, worldbuildwithus.com, and click a link, uh, and click the button on top. Oh, my God. And click the button to submit your writing prompt. If If you want to follow us on social media, you can always go to Twitter and find us at Let's World Build. And... over at Let's World Build. And if you want to join our Discord, and if you want to join our community over on Discord, or if you're feeling particularly generous, you can always give us money over on Patreon with a link for both of those in the description. That'll do it for this episode of World Build with us. Remember that we love you very much. We're going to get through this together. Until next time.